This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today I'm joined by Ari Shaw, Director of International Programs at the Williams Institute, and Ingrid Eagley, Law Professor for UCLA. Pleasure to have you on. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. In March of this year, your team completed quite a comprehensive research paper titled LGBT Asylum Cases in the U.S. This was a study where you tracked the data of LGBTQ-related asylum cases, uh, the types of persecutions experienced worldwide through fear interviews, and provide recommendations to improve our policy in asylum tracking systems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, you know, if it's helpful just to give a bit of background about the Williams Institute, as you mentioned, we're a research center that's based at UCLA School of Law, focused exclusively on sexual orientation and gender identity law and public policy. Uh, but what I think is unique about us is that we are an interdisciplinary team of scholars. So, um, you know, we have folks, of course, who specialize in law, but also uh, political science, public health, community psychology, economics, and, and other areas. And the goal of the Institute is to produce high quality data and disseminate that to public officials, um, advocacy groups, uh, and the media in order to ensure that data and facts and and not myths and stereotypes um, are what are used to inform uh, public policy that impacts LGBT people. Unfortunately, uh, you know, the history, a lot of law and policymaking around these issues for um, the LGBTI community um, has has really been informed by by stereotypes and, and myths. So our, our goal is to try to, you know, really bring evidence and data to bear on these conversations. A lot of what we do, you know, cuts across any sort of policy area that affects the uh, community, whether that's poverty, um, demographics, the impact of, of COVID on LGBT people. And a big part of that and a growing part of that too, of course, is, is immigration. We do publish work on the LGBT uh, immigrant community, including increasingly more work around refugees and, and uh, forcibly displaced persons. Um, and a lot of that has focused on sort of, you know, basic demographic and, and population estimates, just because the data is so scarcely available. So this particular study on LGBT asylum seekers came out because we were speaking with uh, the group Immigration Equality about LGBT asylum seekers, really just trying to understand um, the size of, of this group, who they are, where they come from, sort of the nature of their claims. And we realized that the need for data on this you know, vulnerable population is, is really great, that there just wasn't a lot of quantitative data publicly available about um, who they are, their lived experiences, and you know, their experience sort of negotiating the, the asylum process in the US. Um, so that really was sort of you know, the genesis of this particular report and, and the need for, for better understanding um, you know, the, this population and, and kind of the challenges they face. But given that LGBT asylum seekers are, are negotiating this within the, the broader system of immigration law and policy in this country, it was really critical that we partnered with you know, our colleagues at the law school, like Ingrid, who, are, who, who have a real deep expertise in, in this particular area of law and policy to make sure that we were sort of understanding how the, the broader issues in this, in this context um, impact LGBT people. 
Yeah, and I was really pleased to be able to come on and partner in this project. I teach immigration law at UCLA and have also done um, data-driven research about immigration courts and immigration processes. I agree with everything Ari said that there is a lack of data. Um, and I think this is the first data-driven project that's looked specifically at LGBT asylum seekers. And so we learned a lot, um, but there's also a lot more work to be done in this area. Right. And as we were going through the paper, it was great that, that you guys were able to break down from different countries and why certain people were leaving from particular countries. And I was just wondering what areas of the world experienced the highest prevalence of LGBTQ related fear claims? And, and could you speak to maybe the social, cultural and political circumstances that uh, surround these occurrences? Yeah, I think, you know, before kind of zooming in on the specific areas, it might actually be helpful too to kind of take a step back and just remind folks um, that consensual same-sex intimacy between adults, you know, effectively um, being, being gay, bisexual, lesbian, queer remains criminalized in nearly 70 countries. And in nearly 40, um, there are laws that de facto criminalize transgender people. And so we know from research that these legal contacts are associated with more negative public opinion and, and lower sort of social acceptance of LGBT people. And that this has a real uh, you know, damaging effect in terms of marginalizing individuals on the basis of their sexual orientation, uh, gender identity or gender expression and, and can create an environment that fuels violence and persecution against LGBT people. And in fact, even in countries where it's not criminalized, research shows that LGBT people still face persecution and violence, including uh, you know, rape, domestic violence, murder, uh, including discrimination across areas like education, access to basic healthcare services, and where LGBT people are discriminated and excluded from housing and employment, they may be forced to take jobs in the informal economy, like uh, you know, sex work. And this makes them, uh, or can make them more vulnerable to exploitation and violence. Um, and so the, the risks of violence and persecution are very real, but it's it's hard to measure exactly, you know, sort of the, the, the scope of, of the issue in part because conducting research and generating data asks that LGBT people make themselves visible um, in order to be counted, in order for us to learn sort of, you know, the, the, the nature of, of the challenges they're facing. And this can put them at further risk of, of violence and persecution. So it's a real challenging environment to, you know, to better understand the situation. The data that we were able to access through the USCIS asylum pre-screening system indicated that there were claims for asylum from 84 countries. And over half of those, 51.3%, uh, were from the Northern Triangle region of Central America. So this includes El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. Um, but there were also significant proportions of, of these claims from Mexico and, and Ghana. Something that's important to point out is that there may be, and, and there likely are other countries where fear-related claims exist. And, and of course, you know, where LGBT people face very real um, persecution and, and violence, but where they have less accessibility to the US and uh, you know, aren't able to come and actually claim asylum in the US. So I think that is, is likely reflected in the data in terms of you know, where the sort of countries of origin that we're seeing uh, asylum seekers from specifically claiming asylum in the US. Um, there've also been some really great 
reporting from journalists and uh, advocacy groups like Human Rights Watch that show sort of the specific threats and uh, persecution that LGBT people face in uh, countries in the Northern Triangle uh, where we saw these claims in, in our data, you know, whether that's um, being targeted by gangs, family members, even, you know, often acts of violence and persecution go uh, uninvestigated due to corruption or fear law enforcement agents, um, because often, you know, they're implicated in the violence or they're the, the ones that, you know, sort of allowing the violence to occur or maybe engaged in violence against LGBT people themselves are members of law enforcement agencies. So it creates a really fearful persecutory environment. Right. And a lot of times they can't go to family members, close friends, um, because doing that will actually also expose their identity. And especially if it's not in an environment where it's welcoming, they have to keep this to themselves and oftentimes leave without telling anyone, right? Um, and, and that's the, the level of silencing that can happen. Now, um, what were the specific sort of data did you uh, accumulate? How did you pick it up? What were the, the numbers that you actually were pulling from in, in this research? We were really fortunate to um, be able to work with a journalist from NBC, Tim Fitzsimmons, who had obtained data from USCIS through a FOIA request. And he shared the data that, um, that he had acquired. But again, you know, this was somewhat limited because it really was data that was coded by USCIS asylum officers as relating to sexual orientation or gender identity status. Um, but it, it really you know, was limited to sort of how they coded this particular data and we weren't able to see the, the raw kind of underlying data itself. Um, right, right. So it, with that, it was, it's a little uh, bit of inference that we have to make and because they don't have particular categories specifically for LGBTQ, like as, as a reason, because um, I know that they have fear interviews and you have to explain the reasons why uh, you left your, the country. So I, I was wondering, maybe uh, Ingrid could step in, um, like what sort of aspects in the U.S. immigration system and asylum process can be improved in order to better address these cases? Like what were some of the, the recommendations that you had? Yeah, I think just in terms of the data first, though, I wanted to just explain for the listeners the process that migrants are placed into um, the, into these fear hearings. And that's what we're capturing in the data and learning about LGBTQ asylum seekers. Um, so when individuals arrive at the border and if they express fear of persecution or torture to be returned to their country of origin, um, often they're placed into a process known as expedited removal. Um, and, and, but during that process, if they do express that fear, they will be given what's known as a credible fear hearing, a credible fear interview. And during that credible fear interview, um, the adjudicator, the asylum officer is going to determine um, whether that person demonstrates a significant possibility of meeting the criteria for asylum. Um, and if they are successful, then they'll be put into um, proceedings in front of an immigration judge where they can continue to pursue that, that 
process. So what our data really captures is, uh, you know, how many people are including um, an LGBTQ um, asylum, and it could be in addition to other other fear-related claims at the time of this fear interview, um, and finding, you know, out how many of those claims were found to be sustained, in other words, having been found to be credible. And with this process right now, um, is it seamless? Uh, That's why I go back to the recommendations of how we can improve this system so we can highlight and have um, better numbers of the reasons why people leave and what we can do from a U.S. immigration standpoint to uh, identify and help improve the asylum processes. I'm not sure like after all the information that you gathered and then had like a section for recommendations, I was wondering what sort of uh, conclusions or advice that you came to after this. Yeah, I can jump in just in terms of the data collection. I think I think we have a lot of recommendations. I can just offer a few. And I know Ari can mm-hmm. offer a, a, a few more. One thing is, is that this particular study doesn't look at data from the immigration court um, and doesn't link the credible fear interview process on the USCIS side to the immigration court. And I think that giving researchers the ability to access those data sets and link them together through unique identifiers is something that would be really important. The immigration court, um, EOIR, also does release um, significant records about asylum claims, but but its electronic database um, doesn't specify the, the specific ground for the asylum claims. And we think that you know, that's something that should be added to how they record data, the nature of those claims. And that would also allow us to learn more about the prevalence and nature and what's actually happening with LGBTQ related asylum claims. I think that's exactly right. And and I would just add, you know, a few more, I think, you know, it's really critical precisely for, um, you know, what we were just talking about in terms of not having access to the underlying text of the fear interview and sort of data before it was coded to ensure that asylum officers and other personnel, um, you know, within USCIS and and CBP are are adequately trained in how to competently interview um, LGBT people and recognizing the sensitivity and and sort of particular experiences and vulnerabilities that they may be facing. Um, I think it's also important that measures for sexual orientation, gender identity, and sex assigned at birth um, be integrated into the existing data management systems that are operated by both Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security, you know, across a lot of the the different systems that they have for generating um, uh, population data so that we can, um, you know, really understand uh, challenges and and the lived experiences of, of LGBT people across these policy areas. Um, and, and finally, you know, making sure that basic demographic data, again, about sexual orientation, gender identity, and sex assigned at birth um, are, are collected and captured within surveillance systems by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, CBP, and uh, you know, Immigration and, and Customs Enforcement. Because again, that'll allow us to get the most sort of complete comprehensive look at um, the, the, the challenges that LGBT people face as they negotiate the different aspects of, of these processes because uh, the data is often so siloed and, and existing within different agencies and sub-agencies. Uh, and so if everyone is 
including these measures, it'll allow for more you know, accurate and effective data across, across agencies. During your research, what piece of asylum data you collected surprised you the most? Um, what story do you think that tells? Well, one of the things that I think struck us a lot was that for those people who raised LGBT claims, um, they were very likely to receive a positive determination of fear um, after the interview. So um, 98.4% um, of claims um, received a positive determination of fear. Um, and that is a really um, high rate, positive rate. And we think that just shows how valid the claims are. Um, and it also raises further concern that many claims are not actually raised um, by people who are not able to get to the border or people who were turned away at the border. I think it underscores just how urgent these claims are that they are being um, received at such high rates with positive fear determinations. Right, because if we have more specified categories, we can have a more intentional policy approach. And I think that's what you guys are, are recommending uh, right now. And then also in your paper, uh, once we see more explicitly uh, the actual numbers and from well, what demographics and areas in the world uh, these asylum cases are coming from, we can make more informed policy. And I know you guys were definitely toiling away uh, to gather it up and package it in a nice and digestible fashion. So that's much appreciated. So and now if, if uh, other people here in America want to help support LGBTQ asylum seekers and their efforts and just overall elevate their importance, uh, what can they do? Well, I'm really optimistic about you know the, the prospects for change in this area. Um, you know, folks may be familiar that President Biden earlier this year in a presidential memorandum explicitly indicated uh, support for advancing the rights of LGBTIQ plus um, refugees and asylum seekers as part of U.S. foreign policy and development assistance. Um, and so, I think the fact that there's been an explicit articulation of this priority by the US government, by the administration means that there's a real uh, you know, window of opportunity and I hope a real sort of um, you know, institutional push for making the change specifically for increasing data collection. So I think one area you know, that folks can, can support that is by um, you know, making it clear to their elected representatives that this is something that they, they support and continue to push the, the administration to, to implement these changes across all of the executive agencies. Um, I also think that one of the really important things that people could do is to support funding for access to counsel and immigration. One thing that not everyone recognizes is that, you know, although immigrants have certain rights at the border and asserting asylum claims and a right to be represented by a lawyer when they go through immigration court proceedings, there's no actual funding for a guaranteed appointment of counsel like we have in our criminal legal system under the Gideon decision and the Sixth Amendment. Um, so this results with, in you know, so many people going through proceedings and many of them while they're in detention without having a lawyer to help them present their case. And in, in an area like asylum, that's particularly complex um, and where there's always a government lawyer on the other side, this is a really crucial area for development.
And there's been talk about having increasing federal funding, not just for know your rights type proceedings, but also for direct representation and calls on you know, even more funding and also funding at the local or state level to um, provide lawyers. And so I think you know, helping to support these campaigns um, either at the state, local or national level to increase funding for access for counsel is something that can help all migrants and also LGBTQ asylum seekers. So if people want to stay connected or be up to date with uh, both of your guys' initiatives or anything that's new happening at the Williams Institute, uh, where should they go? They should absolutely uh, check out our website, williamsinstitute.law.ucla.edu, where I believe there are opportunities to, to access all of the various newsletters and social media uh, for Williams Institute. Um, and I think Ingrid probably has some other um, specific outlets as well. Yeah, well, a copy of our report is available on the Williams Institute webpage. Um, and the Williams Institute has been doing, um, you know, a lot of other really great research in this area. Um, and I think has another new report coming out. Ari, do you want to highlight the, the new report? Please do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are, you know, continuing to look at LGBT asylum seekers, um, you know, as we were saying, this this initial data was was quite limited in in scope, and so we were trying to think through um, if there's a way to estimate more broadly about the number of LGBT people who may be applying for asylum in the U.S. on the basis of any eligible fear. Uh, as Ingrid mentioned earlier, you know, there there are a lot of instances where LGBT people may be applying for other reasons uh, not necessarily linked to LGBT status that wasn't captured in this data. Um, so using information that we have about the number of LGBT immigrants in the US, um, you know, uh, is giving us uh, some additional insight into the average number of applications per year uh, by LGBT asylum seekers um, for any sort of eligible reason. And so we're, we're hoping to um, publish that in, in the, the coming weeks. Awesome, awesome. Definitely look forward to it. Um, Ari, Ingrid, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we definitely look forward to the future projects and initiatives that you have coming out um, because this work is so incredibly important because I think you highlighted an area that is often unseen, right? And a lot of people don't put too much thought about the reasons why refugees come to America. And uh, there's more specified reasons than we hear all the time on regular news. These voices need to be highlighted. So um, I appreciate the, the work that you guys do and we'll definitely uh, send support your way. If you're listening, please stay up to date to, with Ari and Ingrid and look forward to the next report coming out. So I appreciate you. Great. Thanks so much for having us on the show. Thanks so much, Dan. It was, it was really a pleasure. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week. <laughs>